Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for May 13th, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. I'm the editor of the Daily Appellate Report, a print supplement to the Daily Journal. On our program today, I'll once again be joined by practitioners and academics to discuss salient issues affecting California appellate jurisprudence. This week, we have three terrific guests joining me. We'll be speaking first about a much-anticipated potential rule change to the California Rules of Court that will determine whether a century-old practice whereby appellate opinions are automatically depublished upon their being granted review by the state high court will sustain, or whether California will join every other court system in the country and allow such opinions to remain published. At issue here is also whether and how these opinions can be cited in lower courts. This issue has sparked considerable debate. The California Supreme Court invited public comment on the proposed changes, which it outlined in a release last summer, intending to implement any resulting changes by the first of this year. But such was the vigor of public contributions that the comment period was extended, and the proposed effective date of any changes is now July 1st, so we should expect to hear the outcome of the proposal in the next few weeks. Two guests will opine on this issue. First, Jessica De Palma who just completed her time as an appellate fellow with Horvitz and Levy and has begun a clerkship with the California Appellate Courts. Then we'll hear from retired Superior Court Judge Stephen Brick, now a case manager with JAMS, who will contribute a jurist's perspective on the proposed changes. Finally, we'll speak about a California Supreme Court case that will have its opinion filed shortly, People v. Franklin. The case addresses evolving jurisprudence, both at the U.S. Supreme Court and within California, as to the sentencing of juvenile defendants convicted of serious crimes, including homicide. Recent case law has all but proscribed as unconstitutional life without parole sentences or de facto life without parole sentences for juvenile offenders, such as the defendant in this case who received a mandatory 50 years to life sentence for a homicide committed when he was 16. The state high court will consider first whether such a sentence is indeed a de facto life without parole sentence, and second, it will decide whether a recently enacted law which guarantees juvenile offenders a parole hearing within 25 years of incarceration, renders a sentence such as Franklin's fit to pass constitutional muster. To speak about this issue will be Professor Heidi Rummel of USC Gould School of Law, who directs the school's post-conviction justice project, which filed an amicus brief on behalf of Franklin in this case. Before we get to our guests, let me remind you that one hour of CLE credit is available for all listeners of this podcast. You can find the link to a short true-false test on the page where this podcast appears at dailyjournal.com. Complete that, and one hour of credit is yours. With that, we'll get to my conversation with Jessica De Palma. I should note here quickly that in my conversation with Ms. De Palma, I introduced her as an appellate fellow with Horvitz and Levy. Uh, since we recorded our conversation, Ms. De Palma has completed her fellowship and begun clerking for the state appellate court. Joining the program now is Jessica De Palma. Ms. De Palma is an appellate fellow at Horvitz and Levy. She contributed a perspectives column recently outlining some of the contours of the proposed rule change, and she's here this morning to discuss them a bit further. Ms. De Palma, thanks very much for being on the podcast. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So last July, the, uh, the California Supreme Court released a proposal for some changes to rules 8.1105 and 8.1105. One five. For anyone listening that might not be totally familiar, could you walk us a bit through the current rules? Understand these rules pertain to state appellate opinions, and they're being depublished upon being granted review at the state high court. Yes, exactly. So um, under the current rules, um, under California Rule of Court Rule 8.1105, um, 
1105, a published court of appeal opinion is automatically depublished when the Supreme Court grants review in that case. Um, and then under a um, another rule of court, Rule 8.1115A, which addresses the citation of appellate opinions, um, an unpublished opinion must not be cited or relied on by a court or a party in any other action. So what that means is when the Supreme Court grants review of a decision, it can no longer be cited in any other cases. As a, an appellate attorney, as a practitioner, how cognizant must someone be of these rules as they stand now? If you're writing a pleading and you're going to cite to a state appellate opinion, um, do you have to be very cognizant of its status, whether it might be have petitioned for review or what the chances of it uh, being granted review are? Is that something that's that's considered when you're um, writing filings for the court? Yes, definitely. It's really important. And I know all the attorneys here that I work with, are, um, it's always on the radar whether the parties in a court of appeal opinion are looking to um, petition the Supreme Court for review. And once they do petition for review, while that case is pending, um, I know they follow those cases closely just to see whether the court will grant review. Um, and especially if we're trying to cite to one of the court of appeal opinions um, in a brief that's going out, we need to be careful just to monitor and see when the Supreme Court grants review, we can no longer cite to the the lower appellate opinion. So it is very important to be aware. Sure. That seems like it would cause some measure of anxiety, especially if you know the appellate opinion you're trying to cite to has very good language for your um, for your side. I would imagine that would be just a bit of a worry to always you know have to be concerned about that. Right. Exactly. I know when, especially if a, there's one appellate opinion that's directly on point or covers an important area of law um, in the first place, the chances are uh, higher that that the parties will petition for review if it's about an important issue. And then also other litigants and trial courts would be more willing to put that in a brief or a trial pleading to rely on that um, on that case. So, yeah, it can cause problems if then granted review and depublished, and there may not be any other law that's really on point. So you would kind of have to find you know, something that's less persuasive or less on point that you can't actually cite in your brief. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about if um, sort of that exact situation had occurred, if you or an attorney at your firm had been relying on an, a state appellate court opinion, and, and that was sort of the, the most on point opinion, and then it happened that it was granted review. So you just had to kind of scramble and find find something else to rely on. Has that, has that happened to you or anyone that you've worked with at Horvitz and Levy? Yes, I know it has happened. It hasn't actually happened to me, um, but I know um, recently there were attorneys that were filing a brief and citing to a case that was up for review. The petition for review was pending, so they were really closely monitoring um, the docket and trying to decide whether they should still rely on this case. Sure. Um, pending review. And then if they filed the brief and later the case was granted review, they could no longer, it's kind of just like the case wasn't there. Um, so they couldn't bring it up at oral argument or in subsequent briefs. So I think that's kind of the hard deci- decision whether or not to rely on the case or wait and see what happens. Sure. Uh, or then you'd have to go and, um, you know, find another case that, and I think it's kind of interesting too, because maybe the next best case is an out-of-state case, right. which is only persuasive authority or a you know a federal case. So it's interesting that you can 
cite to those cases for persuasive authority, but you can no longer cite to a court of appeal, a California opinion that was previously binding authority, right. but since it's depublished, you can no longer rely on it. Right. And say in that circumstance, so you're no longer able to cite to this authority that just had been binding. And now let's say it's granted review, it's reviewed by the Supreme Court, the exact issue that you had been citing to, the California Supreme Court affirms on that point. But in the meantime, in that you know span of, of months, um, you weren't able to to cite to the appellate opinion in your action. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like it's a bit illogical because the lower court made that ruling and the Supreme Court said, yeah, that's right. But in the interim, in the intervening months or years, it's just sort of like not law that anyone can rely on, even though it started and ended as, as good law. That seems somewhat illogical to me. Right, exactly. I think that's one of the one of the motivating factors behind the proposed rule change. And I know in um, a lot of the public comments supporting the proposal, which I guess we'll discuss later, um, a lot of practitioners and bar associations in in support of the proposed changes do mention that, that it's um, frustrating for courts and litigants not to be able to rely on this case in the interim. And especially now it takes, it can take up to two to three years. Sure for the Supreme Court to decide the case. So in that time, you can't rely on what would otherwise be good law. Um, And I do know an issue comes up, too, where a court of appeal opinion often addresses an issue uh, as to which review is not granted. Mm -hmm. Um, So by depublishing the entire opinion, litigants in lower courts are deprived of the benefit of uh, precedential guidance on that issue, which the Supreme Court won't even actually address. Sure. Yeah, that that sounds vexing, <laughs> to say the least. One last question on, on the current rule as it stands. I was a bit surprised to read in, in going over the, the California Supreme Court's proposal from last summer that it seems like California is the only court system of any state or federal court system in the country that still practices this specific um, type of rule. Is that true? And, and what, what what is sort of to be made of, of that uh, uniqueness? Right. Yeah, this point um, has come up quite a bit, first in the court's own proposal and in many of the public comments. This is also mentioned, and I know I've had this discussion with um, several people, several colleagues who mentioned the same thing, that um, California is kind of the outlier on the automatic depublication. And that is correct that um, all other state and federal court systems with intermediate courts do retain Um, the published intermediate opinions when opinions have been accepted for review by the higher court. So the Supreme Court of the United States, when they grant cert, while that case is pending before the Supreme Court's decision, you can still rely on the lower court opinion as binding precedent. Um, And I think California is the the outlier of everyone, which I don't think is a bad thing by itself, but I think... um, it does raise the question of whether it, this is practice is really benefiting California. So I think that is in the uh, California Supreme Court's mind as they consider the proposed changes. I would imagine. Then let's get on to the proposals. Um, I sort of just would like to hand it off to you, and you outlined them very, very well in your in your article. Could you just sort of explain um, to us now what the uh, what the proposed changes are? Sure, definitely. Okay. 
Um, so the uh, proposal, which was released in July of 2015, um, would first amend the automatic depublication rule to eliminate the automatic depublication of appellate opinions when, when the Supreme Court grants review. Okay. Um, and so the proposed new default rule would be basically the opposite of the current rule. Um, so unless the Supreme Court orders otherwise, a published Court of Appeal opinion would remain published after review is granted. Sure. Um, and the proposal also notes that the Supreme Court would retain its um, current power to order that any published opinion, uh, including one that's pending review, be depublished. Okay. Um, so it doesn't seem like the court would exercise that power very often, but it does retain that power. Okay. Um, and then there's also a proposal. So if the rule about automatic depublication changes, they would also need to clarify whether a appellate case that's pending review, um, what the precedential status of that case would be. Sure. Um, and so there's two alternatives concerning the effect of a published appellate opinion while okay. reviews pending. And uh, the first alternative would provide that unless the Supreme Court order, orders otherwise, um, an appellate opinion would remain binding precedent on all California Superior Courts while review is pending. Okay. Um, and then the second alternative, which they're calling Alternative B, would provide that um, a published opinion would have no binding effect, but could be cited for persuasive value only while it's under review. Um, then we've spoken a bit about the problems uh, that exist with the current setup, but you outlined mm -hmm. some potential pitfalls that could come up, or at least um, some slight problems that could arise with the latter to those um, proposed changes that pertain to precedential value, how um, they might, in both of them in different ways, uh, make vulnerable trial court rulings. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure, definitely. Yeah, I think that's where mo most of the debate in the public comments and from what I've heard uh, has been about the the difference between alternative A and alternative B with the precedential effect. Sure. Um, so under the proposed alternative A, which um, where the appellate decision would still be binding uh, authority on trial courts, um, in that case, the Court of Appeals reversal of the Court of Appeal opinion would then make vulnerable any superior court decisions based on the still published Court of Appeal opinion. Right. So in that interim, if any trial courts relied on the what would be a binding Court of Appeal opinion, then those decisions would be um, reversed sure. if the Supreme Court reversed the appellate opinion. Um, alternative B could also leave Superior Court decisions vulnerable to reversal, but under different circumstances. Okay. So if the Supreme Court affirms the appellate decision under review and then disapproves an older conflicting Court of Appeal opinion, Superior Courts would, would have been bound to follow the older opinion because they couldn't have followed the uh, just persuasive only opinion that was under review. Um, and it seems like Alternative B may also proved to be a bit difficult to apply because it would, I guess, effectively make some published California opinions the equivalent of opinions from other jurisdictions, like we talked about, sure. how you can cite as persuasive authority out of state or federal cases. Um, so that might cause a bit of confusion for trial courts and litigants in the interim about how to use the persuasive authority versus binding cases. Sure. 
Then uh, we touched a bit on the public comments that have been made, and I understand that um, the period for public comment was extended by the California Supreme Court because there were there were so many, or there was there was very much interest in, in this particular debate. Uh, mm-hmm. I imagine you must have weighed weighed into those a bit when you were writing your article. Could you give us a bit of a summary of where people seem to fall, judging from the the public comments? Sure, definitely. I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of this whole proposed rule change because this first came on their radar in July when the proposal was released, and they were the Supreme Court, who makes the California Rules of Court, were um, soliciting public comments up until October 2015, and they received, and they were supposed to decide the rule change, and any new rule would go into effect um, in January, and they actually extended the deadline for public comment and extended their own deadline to um, have these proposed rule changes, if any, yeah. go into effect to July 2016. Um, so it seems like maybe they didn't expect there to be so many comments. And um, reading through the comments, which are available through the Cal Supreme Court's website, um, you can tell people feel very strongly about uh, the rule changes. So it's interesting to see that. And it does seem like the Supreme Court's really taking those public comments into consideration. And let's see, I think... Um, Yes, a total of 37 public comments were received um, from there's comments from judges, practitioners, and various bar and appellate organizations. And of the 37 comments, um, 23 support the proposal and nine oppose any amendments. Um, We'll just like to keep things how they are. And it's interesting that of the 23 comments in support, those supporters are about evenly split between um, if they favor alternative A versus alternative B. So that's kind of interesting. That's where the main point of contention seems to be. Yeah, that is interesting. Then um, I'll put you on the spot. If if you were given the power tomorrow to to make the final call as to what the proposed change would would become, what the final rule would be, what what would you what would you select? Um. I think, in in my humble opinion, I think the court should adopt the proposed rule change uh, regarding the depublication status um, to eliminate the automatic depublication. I think it is valuable to have appellate opinions on important issues of law that are freely citable during the time when review is pending, because that can be several several years. And I also think because so few California appellate opinions are published in the first place, I think I saw... Um, in the Judicial Council's statistics report, only about um, 17% of majority opinions are actually published in the first place. Um, so I think it's taking further taking away from those published opinions uh, during the pendency of review. And I go back and forth between alternative A and B, which I okay. think would be easier and more practical to implement, but I do think um, I'm favoring alternative A, which is consistent with the approach of other states um, where appellate opinions that are pending review uh, are still binding precedent. So I think that would eliminate or cause less confusion than alternative B. Okay. I'll put you on the spot just just one more time. Um, If you had to prognosticate as to what the court will do, what do you think the, the most likely outcome will be? I really can't tell at this point. I've sure. tried to um, pick the brains of some of the practitioners here that have been at 
at Horvitz and Levy that have been practicing for quite a while to see what they think. And the opinions kind of seem to be mixed on what the Supreme Court will do. Um, It does seem like they're really considering it and taking the time to review all the public comments. And I do think it says something that they extended their own deadline to decide and to implement any rule changes. So I am really interested to see. Um, I think it could go either way at this point. Maybe they decide that the system's been working out fine as it is and they just keep things the same or they do decide to implement the proposed changes. Sure. Oh, I just was going to mention that um, the court did say in their proposal that they've considered there's been, I think, three past proposals um, throughout the years, um, I think since Mm. the 80s, where they've considered changing the rule, and those haven't been adopted. So it's interesting to see now, I think they mentioned that some Court of Appeal justices were expressing their interest in changing the automatic depublication rule. So that was kind of maybe their initial motivation for making the proposal an invitation to comment. So it's interesting to see how much they consider that and whether they're taking that into account. Uh, I'm sure a lot of practitioners share your interest in the outcome here, and looks like we'll find out relatively soon what happens if the, the effective date is proposed to be July uh, July 1, so find out soon enough. Yes. Um, exactly, yeah, any, any week now or any day now, hopefully, I've been keeping track on the website and trying to see if there's yeah. any buzz about anything coming out, but hopefully soon we'll know what the yeah. outcome is. Okay, well, we'll look forward to that. Those are all the questions that I had prepared for you. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we go? Um, no, I think that's it. Great. Well, um, Mr. Palman, thanks so much for being on the program. Um, we appreciate your time. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk about the the rule changes. And it's an interesting little area of California practice, so interesting to see what happens. Certainly. Certainly. Thanks again. Again, that was Jessica De Palma. Until last Friday, an appellate fellow with Horvitz and Levy, and now a clerk with the California Courts of Appeal. We'll move on now to my conversation with retired Superior Court Judge Stephen Brick. Joining us now is Judge Stephen Brick, a retired Superior Court judge from Alameda County. Served there for roughly 14 and a half years, and during that time also spent about a year as a Justice Pro Tem in the 1st Appellate District. Before that, he was with ORIC and now serves as a neutral mediator and arbitrator for JAMS. Judge Brick, thanks very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. I appreciate the invitation. Our previous guest, Jessica De Palma, laid out with some detail the, the current rules as they stand now and the proposed rule changes to 8.1105 and 8.1115. So I'd like to go ahead and get your opinion regarding the rules as they stand now from your perspective as a jurist, um, some problems that you saw manifest. Well, as you may know, Superior Court judges are required to follow the binding precedents established by the California Supreme Court and the California Courts of Appeal. Many times in my experience, there were no binding precedents. And in that situation, it was necessary for um, a, a trial court judge to do the best that he or she could to figure out what the California Supreme Court would do when faced with the same problem. 
when you have a binding precedent, a California Court of Appeal opinion, and it's depublished during the period of uh, after the Cal Supreme Court has taken the case but not yet decided it, you no longer have that precedent as available to cite. Um, and indeed, under the existing rule, you're not even supposed to rely upon it. So it sort of it just sort of limits the resources that are available to a trial court judge to figure out what the right answer is or should be. Many times the California Supreme Court takes a case because not only is it a matter of statewide importance, but because there are conflicting California Court of Appeal decisions. And the fact that it takes one case doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to disagree with the case it took. The other case might have been pending, you know, out there as a published decision for two or three years. Um, these days, I've noticed that the California Supreme Court often will take cases and affirm. Um, and yet, if if the current when the current rule is applied, once it takes the case, the the case that might have the better logic is no longer citable, and the case that might ultimately be disapproved is still the only case out there, and it's binding on the trial courts. And that puts the trial court in an awkward position, particularly if you read the depublished opinion, which, of course, is readily available through electronic services like Westlaw and, and LexisNexis, um, and, you, and you think it's right. You're really in a tough spot. Sure. I can, I can imagine. And then as a superior court judge, it sounds like you would be pretty cognizant of these, um, these particular appellate opinions that either you, know, you, you might be relying on uh, in your rulings or attorneys might be relying on. Um, and you must be sort of cognizant of whether or not or when they might, be, uh, they might have review granted. Is that correct? Yeah, we would uh, we would certainly be if if it's a if it's a published decision when the attorney cites it to us, um, the attorneys would of course be obligated to let us know if a hearing's been granted, which makes it a depublished decision. And um, trial judges and their research attorneys pay particular attention to the opinions that they're going to cite and rely upon in their own decisions. That doesn't mean we're perfect. Um, and and things can get past you if you have a busy calendar, but but you try to pay careful attention to the status of an opinion. Have there been any examples or any instances in your courtroom where either you or counsel have relied on an opinion, and during the course of the matter you're you're hearing that opinion, all of a sudden it's granted review and it can no longer be relied upon? I can't remember any particular instance, but I can remember there were a series of decisions involving um, arbitration agreements and whether or not the agreements were unconscionable under the California Supreme Court's decision in Armendariz. And then particularly after the U.S. Supreme Court began to weigh in under the Federal Arbitration Act, um, we started seeing different opinions from the California Courts of Appeal and the California Supreme Court has weighed in, and during the period when it weighed in, the decision that it took for hearing would be depublished, whether or not it turned out to be affirmed by the Supreme Court. Sure. That certainly sounds like it could be a bit vexing. I'd be curious to know your opinion as to you know, perhaps why California has held out so long with this system, especially considering it seems now, uh, according to the the California Supreme Court that it's the lone court system in the country that, that uses it. 
I, th- I think that's a great question, and I think the answer is partially historical. You know, for the first hundred years or so of our statehood, the California Constitution w- required that when the California Supreme Court accepted a case for hearing, it would hear it de novo, meaning that the Court of Appeal opinion would would be treated as if it had never existed, and the Supreme Court would then be obligated to decide all of the issues that were presented to the trial court. But the Constitution was amended back in 1984 to give the Supreme Court the discretion to take one or more, but not necessarily all of the issues uh, for review, which makes good sense given how busy that court is and that not all of the issues in a particular case are necessarily of statewide importance or create a conflict among the courts of appeal. Um, I think the problem is that there was this inertia that no one at the time in the 80s could see why it was such a big deal to uh, um, change the rule or not change the rule. And that that, that inertia has uh, persisted over the last two or three decades, despite the change in technology, which has resulted in uh, every court of appeal, whether published every court of appeal opinion, whether published or unpublished, being de facto published electronically and readily available to everyone in the public. Okay. You mentioned that constitutional amendment in 1984. I understand that there was some impetus in the 80s to to make a change similar to the one proposed now. Would you just say it it, it might have been inertia at that time that, that caused those efforts to fail? Well, there was, I mean, I think when uh, Rose Byrd was the chief justice, she was actively involved in looking at uh, the possibility of changing um, the the rule. Um, But when she was uh, taken out of office and replaced, I think her successor uh, did not share her interest in pursuing the change. Now, moving to the proposed changes, in your column, you voice support for a particular outcome. Could you tell us what what that outcome would be that you find preferable and and why you advocate for it? Yeah, I I, uh, prefer alternative A, which leaves the decision of the Court of Appeal um, having the same precedential value that it had as if the the Supreme Court had not taken the case, unless the Supreme Court exercises its discretion to uh, depublish it in a particular case for good reason. And, uh, that, that's my preference. And the reason is that, um, first, that is the consistent practice in every other state and in all the federal courts. So lawyers who practice both in state and federal court um, are aware of how that works when the U.S. Supreme Court grants certiorari a, a decision of the Court of Appeal, say, for the Ninth Circuit, remains um, published and citable, but with the notation that cert has been granted and everybody then would approach it with a little bit more caution than if cert had not been granted. Um, I think that's that would be a more clear um, a- application of the law and, and, and result in less confusion than um, having these decisions have persuasive value. And when you go back to the situation I mentioned a few minutes ago, where you have two opinions in conflict with each other from the Court of Appeal, and the Cal Supreme Court takes the hearing, grants a hearing in the more recent one, then 
and the, the other one is not, no hearing is granted and it's not depublished, then the earlier case remains the only case and the trial court must follow it whether or not the Supreme Court is ultimately going to overrule or disapprove it. Okay. Now, even with your ideal situation that you outline here with um, appellate cases no longer being automatically depublished and having them available for precedential value with the caveat that they're under review, do you see any potential drawbacks? I know our, our previous guest, Jessica De Palma, she outlined a couple of ways in which both alternative A and alternative B could both sort of in different ways cause superior court rulings to be uh, vitiated. Do you see any potential pitfalls um, with the proposed changes? You know, the reasonable people can, can have different opinions, and I think Jessica mentioned that the, the, of the clear majority of the respondents to the court's request for comments um, who are in favor of making a change, um, I think Jessica counted about an equal number for alternative A and B, I actually counted 14 out of 25 for alternative A, but be that, be that and, and, and of those, 20, those 14, that included every court of appeal district in the state, which took a position as a court, hmm. as well as several individual justices from several of the courts of appeal who were all in favor of, of A. Um, so I, I think that in that sense, there's a, a clear consensus among the judiciary who responded to um, to have a preference for a. But it, but I also think it's important that that um, you know, as I wrote in the uh, in the piece I did on April 7th for the Daily Journal, the illustration of a relatively new case at the time. Um, there are many instances now when the California Supreme Court only addresses one or two issues that had been raised um, in the trial court and not all of the issues that have been resolved by the Court of Appeal. And there are instances such as in the Gaines case that I wrote about where the Court of Appeal addresses other important issues where there aren't any other recent precedents in the area and the California Supreme Court doesn't reach them at all. Under the current rule and under Alternative B, um, those would no longer be binding for purposes of a trial court, even though they're not being reviewed by the California Supreme Court. And um, the Gaines case was an illustration of two such issues that deserved to remain published while the California Supreme Court was deciding that it was ultimately going to affirm the Court of Appeals decision. Uh, and then, of course, after the affirmance. Sure. What would you make of, of the potential concern that, say, a uh in the appellate case is up for review, uh, but remains, um, you know, binding authority. And then an, um, a trial court might make a ruling based on on that appellate ruling. And then the state high court ends up overturning that opinion on the issue that the lower court relied upon. So, I mean, that that is a potential outcome, but I don't think that's any worse or different than if there is no binding authority that the trial court can cite and the trial court does its best to divine what the Supreme Court's going to do, and it's wrong. Sure. There's, there's still going to be a reversal um, if that was a material element of the case. Okay. It sounds like you've waded through the public comments a bit. It sounds like the judiciary, by and large or entirely, sides with um, alternative A and no longer automatically depublishing rulings. Uh, if you could forecast a bit, how, how do you see these proposed 
will changes coming down here in the next couple of weeks? You know, that's a great question, and I'm, I'm, I'm not in the business of forecasting. <laughs> but I will say this, you know, and to better answer one of your earlier questions, um, the only downside I see to adopting either A or B is that it's going to require more effort by the Supreme Court and the staff attorneys who work with the justices to evaluate the case at the front end of the case rather than after um, a full briefing and hearing an oral argument. Um, if they feel like there's a concern that um, they might want to depublish a particular case, you know, if it, right now everybody's used to the rule that they're automatically depublished and nobody worries about the consequences of that. I think that the fact that the court has invited comments and on its proposal suggests that, that the, the court or at least some of the justices recognize that, that that's not a good practice. Um, so the cost to the court of implementing either A or B is that when the justices meet in conference to determine whether or not to hear a case, as they do every Wednesday, um, there's going to have to be a little bit more thought given to, um, well, is, while we're, if we decide to take the case, uh, is there a good reason to depublish this decision while we're considering the case? And I, I, I don't think that's going to result in more work for the justices, but I think it's going to have a change in the timing of the work. And I think that that's going to maybe play some influence on whether they feel that that's the way they want to spend their time, whether they don't want to commit to a particular position or look like they're committing to a particular position before they've had full briefing and oral argument. With this, you anticipate you know, that potential impact on the, the high court. What sort of impacts might you forecast for practitioners or jurists were these uh, proposed changes adopted? Well, I, I think that, that uh, adopting Alternative A is going to make it better for uh, lower court judges and for practitioners because there will be a precedent that will be citable, albeit with the caveat that a hearing's been granted, um, where there wasn't one before. And uh, I think that, you know, in some situations that will mean that, that uh, you'll have conflicting precedents and under the California Supreme Court's decision in auto equity sales, the, the obligation of a trial court when there are conflicting precedents is to follow the one that it thinks is best and most likely to be adopted by the Supreme Court. And it eliminates the need to follow one that you think is wrong when it's the only one. Sure. Okay, well, it sounds like there's a fair bit at stake, and I'm sure a lot of people are, are eagerly awaiting the outcome of this proposal. Um, so we'll we'll leave it there for now. And retired Judge Stephen Brick, thanks very much for joining me. I uh, enjoyed our conversation, and uh, I appreciate all your thoughtful contributions. Thank you. I appreciate being invited. Again, that was retired Judge Stephen Brick, now a case manager for JAMS. Now we'll turn to the case of People v. Franklin and my discussion with Professor Heidi Rummel. Joining us now is Professor Heidi Rummel. Professor Rummel is a clinical professor of law at USC Gould School of Law and also the director of the school's post-conviction justice project. Professor, thanks very much for joining us. 
My pleasure. So we're speaking about the case People v. Franklin, which was argued before the Cal Supreme Court on March 1st and should be filed in the next few weeks. The defendant, Tyrus Franklin, was convicted of homicide committed when he was 16 years old and was also convicted of using a firearm to cause death, I believe. And each of these counts carried a mandatory 25 years to life sentence. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. So then these were applied consecutively, and so he received a mandatory 50-year-to-life sentence. Correct. At issue here in the Cal Supreme Court are two sort of separate but related issues. One is whether that sentence, 50 years to life, for homicide committed when Franklin was a juvenile, violates the Eighth Amendment. And relatedly, the second issue is whether Senate Bill 260, enacted in 2014 as part of Penal Code Section 3051, rendered this first issue moot by mandating a parole hearing within a youth offender's first 25 years in prison. So mandating a parole hearing within 25 years. Exactly. Before addressing the issues here in front of the Cal Supreme Court, I'd like to take just a step back to discuss sort of the uh, jurisprudential context in which these issues are raised. Um, I know there's been some considerable ferment in both the, the U.S. Supreme Court and the Cal Supreme Court regarding the subject of juvenile sentencing for serious offenses, starting in 2010 with Graham v. Florida at the U.S. Supreme Court, where the court held there that life without parole for youth offenders in non-homicide cases violated the Eighth Amendment. And then two years later in Miller v. Alabama, where the court held that the Eighth Amendment prohibited mandatory life without parole sentences in the context as well of, of homicide cases, and also held that youth offenders must be afforded a meaningful opportunity for release. Exactly. Okay. It was actually the first time that the Supreme Court placed a categorical ban on a non-death penalty sentence for a category of offenders. The court didn't necessarily altogether foreclose life without parole sentences for juveniles in, in all cases, but noted that they would be relatively uncommon. So this isn't exactly a bright line rule. Can you tell me a bit more about what Miller demands from a sentencing court? The Supreme Court in Miller decided the issue that was before it. Both Miller and the companion case, Jackson, arose in states where the life without parole sentence was mandatory for the crimes that they had been convicted of. So the court addressed the reasoning that the court applied to to hold that mandatory life without parole for juvenile homicide offenders is what's most important, I think, as we work our way through the line of cases in the California Supreme Court, um, which is that a mandatory life without parole sentence precludes a court from considering at sentencing how juveniles are fundamentally different from adults, resulting in lesser culpability, greater potential for rehabilitation, and the other factors that, that render such a sentence unconstitutional for the vast majority of juveniles. Okay. Within the California Supreme Court, there's a couple of cases that, that applied sort of similar prohibitions against mandatory life without parole sentences to youth offenders. Could you tell me about those cases? Right. So California is distinct from the states that were at issue in Miller and the companion case, Jackson, in that our penal code um, provides a choice for juveniles convicted of homicide to be sentenced either to life without parole or to 25 to life for a special circumstance murder conviction. One issue with that provision of the penal code in California was that a court of appeals had held that there was a presumption in the statute favoring life without parole. The court looked at that issue in the Gutierrez case 
and um, read the presumption out of the statute and emphasized, as the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court had, that it is it is incumbent upon a sentencing court when considering life without parole for a juvenile to give careful consideration to all of the factors that mitigate youth culpability and distinguish them from adult offenders. Prior to that time, the California Supreme Court had decided the case of People v. Caballero. Caballero followed from Graham, the United States Supreme Court's case that held that life without parole was unconstitutional in any situation for a non-homicide offender. In California, sentencing laws, uh, mandatory enhancements, and various sentencing laws result in many juveniles who are tried in the adult system from receiving very long sentences, which are often referred to as de facto life without parole sentences. In other words, 100 years, 110 years to life, 200 years to life. So first, the California Supreme Court took a look at the case of Caballero, where he had, I believe, a 110-year sentence and ruled that there's no distinction between a de facto life without parole sentence and an actual life without parole sentence. Caballero was a non-homicide case. Um, so what we got from Caballero in California was that a de facto life sentence also violates the Eighth Amendment just as a life without parole, an actual life without parole sentence would violate the, the Eighth Amendment. Then fair to say the upshot sort of of all these cases is that a, a defendant in the California court system, uh, a youth offender, cannot have a sentence applied that's a life without parole sentence or a de facto life without parole sentence. That is essentially the result of the holdings in both Caballero and Gutierrez, but allowing for the exception that the United States Supreme Court carved out in Miller, that in certain very rare cases, it might be the case that a juvenile um, is deter a court can determine that a juvenile is irreparably corrupt um, in a homicide case and occasionally impose a sentence of life without parole. Okay. Now, what would you say the considerations or, or forces at play may have been to lead the, the U.S. Supreme Court to, to add to these new layers of constitutional gloss? Um, we didn't mention the Roper case, but it arose from a case in, I think, 2005, where the Supreme Court held that the death penalty was unconstitutional for anyone under 18, and began to look at the developments in neuroscience, which discuss adolescent brain development, and actually demonstrate what most parents know, most parents of teenagers anyway, are pretty well aware of, that adolescents do not function with the same level of maturity, with the same thought to consequences of their actions, with the same maturity responsibility as adults. And from that brain science, um, the Supreme Court made a distinction between the culpability of juvenile offenders and adult offenders. And they recognized, you know, three or four separate factors that mitigate a youth's culpability, and those have been woven in and out of all of these cases, and they are namely that youth are more impulsive and reckless and lesser able to evaluate the consequences of their actions, that youth are often a product of their environment and have much less ability to extricate themselves from an environment that may be violent, dysfunctional, abusive, um, and so on and that youth have a much greater capacity for rehabilitation and change, that they will grow and mature, that their brains will grow and mature, and um, that it is cruel and unusual to foreclose all hope 
of growth and redemption and maturity um, on the the vast majority of juveniles who commit, even those who commit the most serious crimes. Then getting back to the specific issues here in Franklin, whether the, the 50 years to life sentence was in fact a de facto life without parole sentence, and whether or not Senate Bill 260 moots any Eighth Amendment claim that could be brought if it were deemed a life without parole sentence. Uh, Tell me a little bit more about Senate Bill 260. So SB 260 essentially does two things. For many individuals who are serving very long sentences for crimes committed before the age of 18, it allows them an earlier opportunity for a parole hearing. Um, depending on their original sentence, either at 15, 20, or 25 years into their sentence. The other thing SB 260 does is it creates a requirement that the Board of Parole Hearings place great weight on the mitigating factors of youth that were outlined in in Miller and and Gutierrez and and, and so on. Now, to the issue of whether or not SB 260 moots any potential Eighth Amendment claims for juveniles sentenced to life without parole. I understand the California Courts of Appeal are split on this question. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. It's interesting because there was a precursor to SB, sort of a precursor to SB 260, but Senate Bill 9 created a mechanism where someone sentenced to an actual life without parole sentence in California for a juvenile crime could petition the courts after 15 years of incarceration for a resentencing hearing. And the Supreme Court, California Supreme Court, took up the issue of whether SB 9 remedied any Miller violations for individuals serving life without parole and held that it did not, that a juvenile offender is entitled to a constitutional sentence at the outset. So some of the um, California Courts of Appeal, of course, sort of picked up on that reasoning. Um, Others have recognized that there is a distinction with SB 260. For those individuals who are eligible for an earlier hearing under SB 260, like Mr. Franklin, you know, following their sentencing, whether they receive 50 to life or 100 to life or 500 to life, you know, they walk out of the courtroom knowing that they will be entitled to have a parole hearing, you know, after 25 years, which is, I think, somewhat different than having the ability to petition for resentencing at some point in the future. Um, But interestingly, as some, some of the courts of appeal have held, and I think it's an important consideration for the California Supreme Court, that under California sentencing laws, most of which are mandatory, there's no requirement and and not really a, a formal mechanism for sentencing courts to take into consideration the, these constitutionally required mitigating factors of youth. Sure. Um, so I think one important question for the Cal Supreme Court to answer is, even with SB 260 and the, the likelihood of an early parole hearing, um, is is it a is it a constitutional concern that the sentencing court didn't take into consideration any of the um, mitigating factors of youth when it originally sentenced these individuals to, you know, what are in many cases otherwise de facto life sentences? Right. It sort of sounds like that's the the reasoning of the appellate courts that have said that the Senate Bill 260 moves these potential claims is that, well, because there's this chance at, at 25 years, then the considerations at the time of sentencing do not need to take place, the ones mandated by Miller. 
Yeah, I think that's about probably the best argument. I, I wasn't, I did not attend the Franklin oral argument, but I do know that the council, um, the court asked a lot of questions about what happens at the original sentencing and, and was seemed to be interested in setting a baseline because one thing SB 260 requires the parole board to consider is demonstrated growth and maturity. And the court was interested in how you know, from what baseline that growth and maturity is evaluated by the parole board if none of that is taken into consideration at the original sentencing hearing. So at least some of the justices, I think, were concerned with that, uh, you know, that related point. Okay. Now, you're the director of the, the Post-Conviction Justice Project at USC Gold School of Law, and, and your group filed an amicus brief on behalf of, of Mr. Franklin. Can you tell okay. me how your group became um, involved in this litigation? Well, we, um, for many years, we have represented life-term prisoners in California at, um, in the parole process. And um, we were involved, we actually co-sponsored Senate Bill 260, um, so we're involved in the drafting and passage of that bill. And since its passage, um, we have represented a significant number of individuals who qualify for a youth offender parole hearing. Um, and so as such, you know, we weighed in on the kind of, specific question of whether our current parole process actually provides a meaningful opportunity for release. That's the promise of of Miller and um, Caballero and, and Gutierrez, is that a, a youth offender has a meaningful opportunity for release if they are able to demonstrate, you know, growth, maturity, and some degree of rehabilitation. In that brief, we'll, and we'll, we'll sort of unpack it a bit, one thing you say is that the bill, Senate Bill 260, was not intended and did not unintentionally create a, a panacea for constitutional problems with uh, de facto life without parole mandatory sentences for youth offenders. Could you elaborate on that? Right. Well, that goes back to the argument of, you know, what happens at the original sentencing hearing and that um, the Supreme Court cases strongly suggest that a, a youth offender is entitled to meaningful consideration of the mitigating factors of youth at the time of their original sentencing hearing. And Senate Bill 260 does not provide for that, and so does not cure that constitutional violation. And there are, you know, a, a number of, invi- of individuals who are excluded from SB 260, um, who uh, may very likely have de facto life without parole sentences, um, most notably the two largest categories being um, individuals sentenced under the Three Strikes Law and individuals sentenced under Jessica's Law um, for certain specified um, sex offenses. So um, certainly SB 260 doesn't cure it for everyone. Um, you know, Mr. Franklin is eligible for an SB 260 youth offender parole hearing, but, but many others are not. Now, in the brief, you deal pretty thoroughly with the parole process and, and the mechanics of it and why it fails to pass constitutional muster. Talk us through a bit the, uh, the parole process as it exists now and why that's the case. California has a, f- a somewhat unique parole process um, in that um, the governor is entitled to review all parole decisions and is entitled to modify or reverse or change parole decisions for anyone convicted of homicide. Um, so there's a, it's, a, it's a very political process in California historically. Since the time that governor review came into the parole process, the rate of people granted parole in California has been incredibly low. Um, Four different governors, you know, it's somewhat dependent on who is the governor, but um, under the first two governors who had that power, 
it was in the single digits, one, two, three percent of people were ever released on parole from life terms. And although that number has increased somewhat over the years, due in part to, I think, the California Supreme Court's ruling in Ray Lawrence, a case that we handled in 2008, and since Jerry Brown became the governor, it's still a very low rate. Um, I think at the time of our brief, it was around 19 percent, I think, Currently, it's closer to 25%. Um, but given the political nature of the parole process in California, our argument is that it does not provide a meaningful opportunity for release and certainly cannot be, we cannot be sure that it will continue to provide a meaningful opportunity for release in the future. Sort of fleshing out a bit more what it means to say that a meaningful opportunity for release must be provided. Uh, I mean, since Miller is relatively recent, there's probably not a whole lot of case law that fleshes out exactly what that term means. And you, in your brief, spend several pages sort of saying exactly what it means to have a meaningful opportunity for release. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, there, and there isn't a lot of case law interpreting the, that term yet, but I think it's there's two components. First, that an individual has to have an, a chance to be released, you know, while they still have some period of life to be enjoyed. So not at 80 years old, you know, I don't know if the number is 50 or 60 or 40, but um, they, it can't be too late in life for them to have any real significant life outside of um, prison walls. And, you know, in the other, which I think is even more obvious component to meaningful opportunity for release is that there really is a decent chance that you can be released if you demonstrate growth and maturity and rehabilitation. It's not sort of a a political crapshoot whether or not you are going to be released. You mentioned that politics plays a role in parole eligibility, and you also mentioned that there can be certain perhaps trivial impediments to parole being granted. You say that rule breaking. Well, the standard for the standard for release on parole in California is whether an inmate poses a current danger to the community. Um, but the judicial review is extremely deferential to the determination made by the parole board, which is composed of commissioners appointed by the governor. Um, so the smallest reason, or what seems like it might be the most insignificant reason, can be sufficient to deny parole. You know, recent a recent rule violation for sort of a nonviolent, non-drug-related offense can be sufficient. Um, a lack of insight into why you um, committed the offense, um, or a description of insight that doesn't comport with what the parole board believes your insight should look like or should be, um, is sufficient to deny parole in California. And um, although those decisions are can be challenged in the courts, um, inmates are not entitled to counsel to challenge those decisions. And like I said, it's a very deferential standard of review, the sum evidence standard. So if there is any modicum of evidence that you pose a current danger, the parole denial will stand in the courts. So safe to say there's many and sundry ensnarements that a potential um, parolee could encounter. And you also mentioned that the parole process, as it sets up, um, inherently disadvantages youth offenders. That is true. The, the parole process itself inherently disadvantages youth offenders in several ways. Um, certain factors that the Supreme Court and the Cal Supreme Court have now um, held should mitigate culpability, such as an unstable social history or you know exposure to abuse, violence, homelessness, um, and other such factors can be held against you at a, at a parole hearing. In addition, um, 
juvenile criminal history is a factor that weighs against you at a parole hearing. Um, prior to a parole hearing, um, the, board of, the Board of Parole Hearings will um, conduct a psychological evaluation of the inmate, and um, a component of those evaluations are um, risk assessments, risk assessment tools that elevate risk based on a number of the actual mitigating factors of youth, such as an unstable social history, um, not completing high school, um, having a juvenile criminal record, and, and other such things. Um, it's it's also important to note, though, that the the structure of our prison system in California severely disadvantages youth from being able to demonstrate the type of growth, maturity, and rehabilitation that is required to be released on parole through our process. Youth who who are sentenced to long terms begin their terms at level four institutions where there is almost no programming available, very little education, um, and, you know, they are housed with the most violent um, and dangerous adult offenders. And they, they must spend a significant amount of time at those institutions um, with certain custody levels that prevent them from programming and place them at a lower um, priority for programming and so on, so that the youngest people entering our prison system will often have to serve many, many, many years before they have access to rehabilitative programming or even a prison with individuals who are on a positive track that can serve as role models and mentors to them. Um, and that can be a big disadvantage in the, in the parole process in California. It often is. Okay. So you conclude the brief by arguing that resentencing is the right remedy here. In your view, what would the appropriate sentencing process look like and what would the appropriate sentence look like? I think the, the, the process is well defined in Miller and, and Gutierrez, but you know, there should be a sentencing hearing where the court gives careful consideration and develops a record of the mitigating factors of youth so that a constitutional sentence can be imposed and also so that when a parole board um, reviews a youth offender's eligibility for parole 20, 25 or more years into the future, we have a better understanding of who that person was at the time they committed their crime, what was going on in their life, and why they might be less culpable. And, and the parole board can then evaluate their growth and maturity as it is required to do under SB 260. At the, the end of your brief, you, you briefly touch on the, the other issue you presented here, whether, in fact, this, this sentence represents a de facto um, life without parole sentence. I believe you, you say that it, it does, correct? Yeah, I think 50 years to life is probably a, cl a close call, but um, that, that means parole eligibility, you know, without SB 260 at, in his mid-60s, which is um, pretty much the end of his life expectancy in a California prison. So um, our argument is that, that 50 years to life is too long. A parole, a parole hearing after 50 years is, is a de facto life without parole sentence. Okay. And you know, one other thing I thought was interesting, you note that the, the California rule against cruel and unusual, unusual punishment is more a bit more robust than the, that found in the U.S. Constitution. Is that correct? Yes. And the, the, the federal constitution prohibits cruel and unusual punishment, um, and the California Constitution prohibits cruel or unusual punishment. One other small point under whether the parole process provides a meaningful opportunity for release is the level of 
legal assistance that's provided to inmates going through the process. If you can't afford to retain an attorney, um, the board of parole hearings um, appoints an attorney for you. They oversee and pay those attorneys, um, and they pay them very little. Um, they max out at, I believe, $400, um, and that includes um, reviewing hundreds if not thousands of pages of a prison file, meeting with their client to prepare them to testify, traveling to an outlying prison, um, and attending the hearing. Um, so I think that is also a component of our parole process that would need to be addressed before a court could confidently say that, that our pro- parole process provides a meaningful opportunity for release. To your point that a remand and resentencing should occur here. The other side might say, well, okay, the, the court will consider the sentence a bit more, consider some of these factors, but more than likely just affirm the sentence. So what's the harm in just leaving that decision for the parole board in 25 years when the juvenile offender has his, his chance for parole? Well, I would be much more comfortable with the parole board evaluating um, Mr. Franklin's case for parole if he had a more robust sentencing hearing where the youth factors were developed, there was evidence about who he was at the time of the commitment offense and the reasons he committed the offense, because that would be a lens through which the parole board could could um, truly evaluate his growth and maturity and making a determination about whether to release him back into the community. Okay. I think we'll leave it there and go ahead and, and await the, the ruling that should be coming down in the next few weeks. Professor Rummel, thanks very much for joining me. Uh, I appreciate appreciate your time and best of luck with the Post-Conviction Justice Project uh, in this case and in the future. Thank you so much, Brian. And that is our program for May 13th, 2016. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank one more time all of our guests, Professor Heidi Rummel, Judge Stephen Brick, and Jessica De Palma, and to thank our listeners as well for tuning in. It's much appreciated. I uh, hope you enjoy the program. And I would like to remind you one more time that CLE credit is available for your having listened to this program. Just find the link to a short true-false test on the page at dailyjournal.com where this podcast appears. Again, I'm Brian Cardile, and I look forward to speaking to you next Friday.